We're going through a series called uh, Living Life Without the Fear. We're going to go through the book of Joshua for about 40 weeks. I was very encouraged in the middle of the week um, when I read a, a, a blog entry by a man called Mark Driscoll who leads a church of about, um, it's hard to say how many people it is because he's, each weekend it goes up by about two or 300. So um, it was 8,000 six weeks ago. It's probably closer to 9,000 now in the United States. And he talked about why he's doing something that's absurd to those who are the experts. He's going to study the book of Luke for two years. And basically the experts say, you just preach thematic scripture. You just kind of preach bits and pieces, try and tickle people's ears. And he's saying, no, if you want people to come and to be transformed, you preach the scripture. So he's going to do that for two years. So very encouraged because we're going to try to do Joshua for about 40 years. 40 weeks. 40 weeks. Make sure that is uh, edited out. 40 weeks. Anyway, but I just want to recap. Last week, we, um, we introduced a series talking about this living life without fear. And um, we, we talked about taking a journey through the book of jo- Joshua. And I highlighted several reasons why I think this is going to be a timely, life-changing study for us. Just three things I'll highlight now. If we want to put up the, um, the next slide, if I did do this. Okay, firstly, I said this book, because it's God's truth, because the commander of the, uh, the army of the Lord that met with Joshua, as you'll read in the next chapter, uh, when we eventually get there, is the same God who met with us this morning and spoke with us. This scripture is as true and as real to us today. And these words aren't something that we, we must look at like a history book, but these words are part of our story as God's people. We, we, we were in this. In effect, as Jesus is part of um, the, the kind of history of Israel, and, 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 and this is all him, so we are part of that. We're invited into the scripture because this is our story. There's rules and, and things and amazing truths about our lives. So this, this, this book is as radically relevant today as ever before. Also, we're in a transition as a church. We, we moved to The View only about uh, three and a half months ago. Change of leadership, ongoing changes. And this is a book about transition. And in a life uh, and in a culture where we, we, we are much more transitional as people, kind of shifting and moving with so many things, this book again speaks to us in transition. I think of young guys coming up, Daniel Townley, who's come up to study the Watford School of Leadership. His life is in transition. Many uh, young people in their sort of 20s going, well, what do I commit my life to forever? What, what do I really go for? That's transition. Transition in our relationship. So this book is a book about transition. Also, it gives us, and this is so primary, it gives us principles for living fearlessly as followers of Jesus. It gives us the principles for living fearlessly as followers of Jesus. What happened about 50 years ago is people started preaching a gospel, which was you put your hands up and then everything is amazing because you love Jesus. And there's no hardship, there's no difficulties because Jesus loves you. And surely if Jesus loves you, nothing's going to be tough for you. That's the wrong gospel. In fact, when you commit to following Jesus, the battle just begins. And so this book is about, hey, I'm following the Lord now. It seems difficult, but this gives us principles for living fearlessly as followers of Jesus. Last week's sermon was just laying a foundation for our study. And believe it or not, today's going to be the same thing. I assure you, we will get into the book of Joshua soon. But there's just so much truth to chew on. There's so much to focus on. Why Joshua? We can't just start and say Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan. Why Joshua? What was it about him? What did God see in him? What, what are those things? What are those dynamics? And so we kind, of, we kind of have to go back a bit more. And I can assure you, and he's preaching next week, and we're not starting Joshua then either. So we're just going to lay a foundation. So as we hit the book, we hit it running. We hit it aware of why this book was written. Who's this man, Joshua? Why is it such an important time in the life of Israel? And what does that mean for us? But we'll pretend we're going to start and read Joshua 1.1. 1, 1. 
Okay, so let's pretend that we're reading from, we're going to start studying the book of Joshua um, like hardcore today. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, we stopped there last week. We'll go on a little further. The Lord said to Joshua, so we'll throw in another name. After Moses, dead. Uh-oh, we're in trouble now. This is the big guy. This is the main man. He's led us. He's, he's the dude. God spoke to him out of a bush, man. Not many people get that. And he, he, he's like the main man of Israel. And now he's dead. The Lord said to Joshua, oh, son of Nun, an orphan, Moses' aid. We'll stop there. Let me quickly kick off. Let me kick off with a brief quiz. Okay? Question one. Who came second? You have to put your hand up and I'll select you. Who came second in the 2008 Beijing Olympics men's 100-meter final? Hands up. Yes, at the back. Paula. Asafa Powell is incorrect. Next answer. Sorry, Tyson Gay, incorrect. Hands up. Yeah, well done, Daniel, Daniel Brown. I mean, that, Daniel uh, came second in the 100 meters final. Anyone else got another suggestion? Richard Thompson, Trinidad and Tobago. He broke the record as well. Second question, who was the second man to walk on the moon directly after Neil Armstrong? Yes? Buzz Aldrin. Fantastic. That is the correct answer. There's always someone who knows everything. That was supposed to be like a really hard one. Who else knew it was Edwin E. Buzz Aldrin? Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, hands are flying up. Yeah, right. These were phenomenal men, but they forgot. Because... They, although they did great things, are in the shadow of another man. Let me say this this morning. I think one definite reason so many of us get sucked into the culture of fear that surrounds us. I proposed last week that we're in a culture of fear, the health and safety culture, the kind of crisis culture that's always put over to us in, in the media. If we're not kind of having to all stress and kind of gather all the shopping we can from Asda and lock ourselves away because of swine flu, it's going to be something else. It's always something. We're, we're in desperate fear. Although we're the most comfortable, sanitized generation of all time, we're always in fear. Well, what if I, if I touch that person and if that person looks at my kid that way, it means he's a pervert. And, and just We live in that culture, a culture of fear. I think one definite reason so many of us get sucked into that culture is that surrounds us, a primary factor that draws us into living life according to the principles and fear-inducing beliefs of our time is the need to be someone. Every one in this room wants to be someone. We want to be Usain Bolt, not Richard Thompson. We want to be Neil Armstrong, not Edwin E. Buzz Aldrin, because they got forgotten. And the thing is, if you have a need to be someone, and you are immersed in, and we are immersed in, and we as a church want to tell people how to live their lives while being immersed in, a celebrity-obsessed, celebrity media-saturated culture, that's the culture we're in, celebrity-obsessed, media-saturated, that someone is always better looking than us, more famous than us, more wealthy than us, and apparently more happy than us. Do you get the point I'm trying to make? The point I'm trying to make is this, and can you put up the next slide? We are destined to inferiority. 
We are destined to second bestness. We are destined to being the one that never made it. We are destined to being losers because we're saturated and we're constantly immersed in, constantly driven into our mindsets is who is good looking, who is cool, who is wealthy, who is great. And we're not those people because we're not on the screen. That's why you can have the absurdity that is Big Brother. Like, give me a minute of fame by acting like a dog and I'm a member of parliament drinking, drinking like oat porridge from a bowl. Come on! Because for a moment of fame, maybe I'll get remembered. We are destined to inferiority. Everyone in this room probably has an inferiority complex. If you're a young woman, unbelievably so. Because none of you look the way you're supposed to look if you're cool and wealthy and good looking and you're on TV. And you know what it does? It destroys you. And what it does is like, well, let me do everything I can to be part of this culture so that maybe somehow I'll fit in. And so you get sucked into the fear culture. Destined to inferiority. And you know what? So was Joshua. So was Joshua. Let me tell you a bit about Joshua. He was born in Egypt. Do you know what the best thing he could have put on his CV at that time was? Slave. So he would have spent the first 40 years of his life. I mean, 40 years. Some of us have pretty bad jobs. But listen to this. It wasn't nine till five, most likely. He would have been under crushing, oppressive slavery. Day in, day out doing nothing but living out the grind. He wasn't even a rat in the rat race. I think, I don't know. He just was totally in a situation which in modern colloquial, it, it, it just was nasty. I was going to use, it's nasty. He, he, he grew up as a slave. Yippee, wow, that's me. I'm a slave. I'm the big guy. I'm a special person. I wonder if they're going to do a reality TV show about my life. Then once he's released from Egypt, once they cross the Red Sea and they, and they go into this wandering, do you know what happens then? He lives his whole life under the shadow of the celebrity of Moses. Great, we got out of the slavery, but sweet, maybe I'm going to be one of God's main men. And then for 40 years, Moses is, Moses that, Moses is the big guy, Moses is the cool dude. Moses gets to go and speak with God and get the things written on the stones. And I just sit here and I'm just, who am I going to be? Listen to these words from uh, James Montgomery Boyce as he writes about Joshua. He says this, I'm going to find the right page. He says this about Joshua. Joshua was a so Many Christians are woefully ignorant of this man and of what was accomplished through him at the important stage of Israel's history. Who read the book of Joshua in the last six months? That's not bad. Last year? Okay, that's actually pretty good. Most Christians are ignorant of this, this man and what was accomplished through him. You see, Joshua was a soldier. He was a brilliant soldier, one of the most extraordinary military commanders of all time. But he was not an exciting person as far as we can tell. He was probably just a bit of a plugger, a rather straightforward man who was chiefly concerned with carrying out his divine commission to the letter. He had no great sins and made very few mistakes. In short, he was not the kind of person who would make a good hero for a novel. Joshua lived under the celebrity of Moses. And yet he gets to take more land for the Israelite people. He gets to lead over two million people 
And God loved what he did. He finishes his life strong. Go to Joshua 24 and see how he finished his life. And can I tell you this, people? It's always about how you finished. Always about how you finished. We can all start well. It's easy to get out the blocks quick and just kind of go, woo, I'm in the lead. It's that last kind of, I mean, I've got runners in this room. They'll probably tell me I'm wrong. But it doesn't matter how quickly you started. If you cross the tape fifth, you cross the tape fifth, I'm sorry. It's how we finish. And you can see Joshua's life is this amazing life. He gets to do so much. So what was it about him? That's what I want to just spend some time this morning. What was it about him? What can we learn from him to live our lives without the fear? Let me start with this. What is the root of fearless living? Next slide. If we turn to 1 Chronicles, don't go there, I'll do it. If you turn to 1 Chronicles 7, verse 27, you find out a little bit of information about Joshua. 1 Chronicles 7, verse 27. And I'll tell you why this is so significant. It says this. Raphael was his son, Resheph his son, Talar his son, Tehan his son, Laden his son, Amahid his son, Elishama his son, and Nun his son, and Joshua his son. Joshua was the firstborn son of Nun. Son of Nun, Joshua's son, Nun. It's a wrap there somewhere. This simple piece of information could guide us to what, for Joshua, may be the root of his becoming such a mighty man, a model for our lifestyle of fearlessness in the 21st century. This simple piece of information could form the very root of why he was such a fearless warrior. If you turn to Exodus chapter 11 and 12, you have the story of the 10th plague. What you had was a great pharaoh. He led quite a large nation, the greatest nation of its time. So he thought he could take on God. You know, that's what most of us think we can do. I've got my own house, got my own mortgage. I'm God. This guy thinks he's God. So God kind of says, all right, Moses, let's just show him who's the boss. And what he comes, he comes to the 10th plague. And this plague was the plague of the firstborn son. That the firstborn son of everything was going to die as the angel of death crossed over that land that one night. Now, what you've got to understand is that that meant Joshua. So Joshua hears through the grapevine, through the uh, Israelite grapevine, I don't know if they sent texts or tweets or whatever it was, but he's hearing suddenly, oh my gosh, um, I'm the firstborn son. I hope there's kind of like a, a way of us not getting sucked into this and getting, you know, killed that night. And there's a story in Exodus chapter 12. If you turn there, God gives instructions to Moses and to Aaron and to others and says to them, the angel of death is going to come. I am God, not the Pharaoh, and I'm going to show him that I'm God. And so what's going to happen? Because he's so oppressive and he doesn't want to release you and you're my people, God says that to you this morning. If you know me, you're my people and I will do everything to guard you and look after you. And he says, these Israelite people are my people. I'm going to get you out of Egypt and it's going to take this. I'm going to have to kill the firstborn son of everyone. Okay? And so what happens is he gives Moses and Aaron instructions. How on earth, I mean, I know how God would know, but for some reason he did this to bring the people in. How would God know not to go into certain houses? The angel of death. Can you imagine the night? Just build it up in your mind. It's pitch black. And the rumor's out that the angel of death is coming to take every firstborn child. Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the silence? Can you imagine the firstborn children of Israel 
Imagine Joshua. But you see what Joshua's dad did? None. He obeyed what Moses was told by God. That you kill the firstborn goat or lamb without blemish. Something's starting to make me think about a few hundred, two thousand years later. You kill the firstborn son, the firstborn, firstborn lamb or goat without blemish. You take the blood that comes from that and you paint it over the doorpost of your house. So when the angel of death comes, the angel of death passes over your house. What became the Passover? Can you imagine Joshua realizing that because he was God's son, because he was one of God's children, he was passed over. Can you imagine the significance of that event to him as he sat shuddering in fear, thinking, what if, what if it hasn't been done right? What, what, what is the thing that makes sure that I am saved in this? What's the thing that gets me out of Egypt? It was a Passover. Blood was shed so that he could carry on living. And I think that was the root of fearless living for him. He realized God knows me. God's intimately involved in me. And God, there's blood shed for me and I can live. And do you know that as followers of Christ, we too must live every moment of our life defined by the truth that God killed his firstborn son as our Passover. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 of the scriptures I read this morning. He took on what I deserved. He suffered and died because I am meant to, because I'm a rebel in God's eyes. I don't like God. I want to live life my way. That's what I did. And that's what I was always would have continued doing until God invaded and changed my life. But we are rebels. Romans 5 verse 6 and 8 says this. It says that while we were still enemies of God, God showed his love and killed his son for us. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 21 says this. He became sin and I received his righteousness. What I call the most glorious exchange in all of reality, in all of time. How does Jesus, who is perfect, who is infinite who is wonderful take on himself my sin and i get everything that he is in a moment how can that be because of god's love simon a foolish 16 year old chasing his own dreams his own ambitions telling god to keep his agenda his plan i don't want to worship you i worship myself because i'm the man i've got my plans you butt out of my life big guy and you know what by grace he came and he invaded my life and changed my life on June the 20th, 1993. And that day has marked me. The day I was passed over. The day that the blood of the lamb came over me and God no longer sees my attempted righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And everything that Jesus is, I am in God's sight because of that. And that has caused, it's the root of living a radically alternative lifestyle to that of the world. My friends, if you are a Christian, there should have been a moment in your life, you're not born a Christian, that doesn't happen. God doesn't have grandsons, he has children. Okay? You had a, should have had a moment in your life or a season in your life when you were passed over because you came to believe in the promises of God that in his son Jesus, sent to die, you receive by faith his righteousness. You become like Jesus in God's eyes. So you no longer deserve his wrath, you deserve his love because he sees you as he sees his son. That moment must, has to, has got to, 
should have changed the way you live. One thing we're not going to tolerate, and I won't tolerate in my own life, and this doesn't mean there's not going to be grace. What it means is that, that we're going to push for being disciples that follow Jesus wholeheartedly, but there's no, not going to be easy believerism in this church. That you throw your hand up, that means you're in. We're never going to speak to you about your life ever again. Great. Put their hand up. It was uh, June the 15th, 19th. Yeah, it's cool. He's here. Just leave them. He can do whatever he likes. That's not what happens. Joshua's life was marked. That's why he was so different. That's why we should be so different because there should have been a moment where God transformed our very identity. We don't need to try and look like Katie Price or Peter Andre or whoever it is because I look like Jesus in God's eyes. I don't need to look like someone else. I have no one else to please because God is pleased. God the Father is pleased with you. Three commentators commenting on the verse, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Three commentators. Justification has never been put into a stronger or more intense terms. Christ is all sin for our sakes and in our place. All of us, God's righteousness in connection with Christ. Christ, our sin, us, God's righteousness. Another man says, God the Father made his innocent, incarnate son the object of his wrath so that we wouldn't receive that wrath. And finally, who would dare to even suggest this? If Paul had not led the way, if it wasn't one of the apostles writing this, we would never be able to accept that God in his son became sin for us, that we might receive his righteousness. Has that happened in your life? Is the root of fearless living in place? Or do you still live in fear of What if I don't know God? What does happen? Let me move on. Five facets for fearless living. Five facets for fearless living. Next slide. Oh, no problem. Okay, firstly, okay, five facets for fearless living. Great. First one, Joshua lived life against the flow. Let me just tell you bits and pieces about Joshua's life, going back into the history of his life and kind of live those before you that I think are five essential facets for how we ourselves can live fearlessly. Firstly, Joshua lived life against the flow. You see, Joshua was one of only two. Him and Caleb were sent with others in Numbers. If you look in the book of Numbers, chapter 13 and 14, he's sent by Moses with 10 others to go and spy out the land of Canaan. All right, now Canaan is where they're going to head. Canaan is like the super duper place. Canaan's like, Canaan's like Northwood, Moor Park, etc. kind of Cassabri estate. Yeah, it's Cass- it's, that's, that's Canaan. And all of us are trying to build up our thing to get into Cassabri. That's where we want to eventually head up, you know? So God says, go and check it out. So 12 people go. Okay, and 12 come back and they all return with the same story. All of them say those guys are massive. The grapes, they brought back apparently grapes of the size of a man's hand. I mean, it was simply the beautiful place, but there were big people there, descendants of a giant race. And they were thinking there's big walled cities. They all come back with the same story. Joshua and Caleb supported that story, said, yeah, that's right. Big cities, massive walls. Big dudes with massive swords, massive grapes. They're lovely. I don't know why they're so focused on grapes. I think Christian people love wine, celebrating wine. But it's just, it's just ongoing. It's ongoing. We talk about the grapes, the grapes, the grapes. But there was one essential difference. Ten spies focused on the difficulties rather than on the promises of God. Two men, Joshua and Caleb, said, if he goes before us, we'll kick whatever gets in our way. Have you ever seen that thing where it seems to be girls who do it? I don't know, like they get this power rush. 
And they're normally between the ages of five and nine. But like seven of them get in a row. And they do that thing. If you don't get out the way, we'll kick you out. Have you seen that thing? Or is that very Zimbabwean? To retract that whole section. But basically, God, Joshua and Caleb go, oh man, you can, you can double the size of the guys. I mean, I don't even know if it's like, you know, the dudes from WWE will take him because if God goes before us, we're okay. The other 10 go, whoa, no, no, no. They doubted the promises of God. They lived in fear. But Caleb and Joshua, Joshua went against the flow. If you look again in Exodus chapter 24 through 32, you have God taking Moses and Joshua. They go up to the mountain. They receive all the instructions. They, uh, God talks personally to Moses. And you see all these things taking place. And Joshua's up there. Joshua's hearing this. Joshua's involved. And then they come down from the mountain. And because they were gone for a little long, they were gone for 40 days, the Israelite people decide, you know what? The fact that we've had a God who's led us by a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, who the person who actually stopped the Red Sea, split it in half so that we could walk through it, let's not stick with him anymore. Let's make a golden calf. Let's worship that because that's really going to do a lot more than that big guy. Let, let's worship a golden calf because Moses, their leader, has gone for 40 days and they default to idolatry. And so what they do is they come down the hill. Moses and Joshua come down. And you hear Joshua say, oh, there's a sound of war in the camp. But it wasn't. Basically, the whole of the Israelite people had chosen to follow idols. And Joshua stands in once again. He decides to stand against the flow. He doesn't join them. He realizes, no way am I living while worshiping idols. I will worship the living God. Let me read this to you. Nobody likes to face opposition, and we've all made excuses for failing to invest the energy necessary to succeed. But spiritual growth takes purposeful effort. Spiritual growth demands change. Change can be uncomfortable and may seem dangerous. Change takes hard work, but God has ordered you to grow in Christ and to conquer sin in your life. Failing to grow because it's too hard or too frightening is inexcusable. You have to take your eyes off the problems you face and focus on the promises of God. Instead of flinching from the obstacles, you must cling to the Savior. Joshua lived life against the flow. He didn't join the masses. And if you want to live life without fear for the rest of your Christian life, and if you're not a Christian, hear what I'm saying to the Christians. If you want to live life without the fear, do not give in to the flow in any area of your life. Okay, if your mates at high school are using language that is disgusting towards authority figures or just using it, don't think, well, I want to fit in, let me do the same. Don't do it. Stand against the flow. If your mates talk about women when you're at work in such a derogatory way, when I, I remember when I first started work as a 16-year-old boy, I'd never heard a woman referred to as a woman. It was always a body part. And I'd just become a Christian. And I was a weakling. I was the tiniest guy in the whole sting. I was only 16. Everyone else is five to 10 years older than me. But God said, don't give in. Don't speak the way they speak. Live life against the flow. Secondly, Mo Joshua engaged the battle. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 and 9. Write it down if you want to. Go and read it. I'd love you to do that. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 9. What we have is a battle taking place. Okay? Exodus chapter 17. They're batting this people called the Amalekites. 
They came and attacked the Israelites of Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go to fight the Melekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top on the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As Mo long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. When he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, I don't know about you, I was kind of the fat kid at school quite a while. Um, I'm returning to that earlier state myself. It's kind of returning to, you know, the fetal position, um, putting on a bit of weight. So when it came to choosing the football team, guess who was chosen pretty much near the last? Fortunately, there was a guy without uh, arms or legs that I used to, and, and he was definitely last. Um, but I was second last almost all the time. Um, but you know, you're normally going, me, me, me. I want to be the really cool guy. I know that guy can score thousands. Oh, yeah. Try. Not chosen, not chosen. Last, oh, you come on my team, then you can play goalie. Can you imagine Joshua when Moses is saying, whoa, there's like a whole army of guys down there. Um, Okay, who, who wants in? Can you imagine suddenly like, oh, you can choose me last. It's cool. Why don't you take um, old uh, Hananophyte or what? Take one of those guys. Can you imagine? He's kind of pushing back. No, no, no. And you know what? As men, particularly as men, when it comes to serving God, serving the church, leading in prayer, leading in prophetic words, leading our people, back out of the battle. I'll leave that with you, man. But you see a constant theme in Joshua's life. He engaged the battle. You see when he comes back from Canaan, like I said earlier, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, he's not like, they are big, let's just chill one, we just stay here, kind of just chill in the armchair. No, no, let's take on the battle. We can kick them because we've got God on our side. Joshua was willing to take on the battle. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. If you ever thought that once you become a Christian, it's all hunky-dory, hunky airy-fairy, don't ever read Ephesians chapter 6. Because here's Paul writing to Christians, oh yeah, before I finish, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Well, why, Paul, why would I need to do that? Surely I'm saved now. Surely it's just lovey-dovey Jesus, all that sort of. No, put on the full armor of God. Take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers. Rulers, authorities, powers, what's going on now? This dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. Victory is always possible with God, but it always depends on faith in God and obedience to his commands. If you're being disobedient, you will get beaten to a pulp. Satan will win that one, I assure you. And if you're being unfaithful and you can't believe in the promises of God, same thing will happen again. And you'll give in to the fear. Listen to this quote. Joshua and Israel clearly understood that the victory is accomplished by God, not the strength of the army. Joshua's military action in that valley was necessary, but it was not sufficient in itself to defeat the enemy. It's not our strength. It's the strength of God in us. Greater is he who is in me and he is without. If you want to live fearlessly, you've got to engage the battle. Thirdly, Joshua prioritized God's agenda. Joshua's agenda, Joshua's comfort was not primary. Often we come to Christ, and it's a comfort thing. Now I can settle, 
and receive a lot of love because this is a loving community. That is fantastic, and that's what the church is meant to be, but that's not what our agenda should be. And it wasn't Joshua's agenda. His comfort, his agenda was not primary. Humble submission to the leading of God, to undertake the mission of God, was what marked him. And it's the same for us. If our agenda or our comfort is primary, we will get sucked into and tainted by the fear culture that surrounds us. He did not selfishly, there's a quote there, he did not selfishly desire personal advantage. There was no lust for selfish gain. His life was characterized by obedient faith, dauntless courage, indomitable perseverance, and total dedication to God and his word. He revealed cheerful confidence in the face of difficulties. Others gave him high honor because of his unselfish disregard of his own personal interests. In every circumstance, he displayed a supreme desire to know the will of God. Who wants to be someone in the kingdom of God? Who wants to serve and have God say, God, let's just do that again. God the Father, God that Martin shared with us again, knows every single person. Well done. A good and faithful servant. Can you imagine how you look at your mates? Said, said that about me. It's me. Good and faithful servant. You've got to prioritize God's agenda. Don't ever for a moment think that you get forward in the Christian life by putting yourself ahead of the rest and kind of saying, I'm really great at that. Um, why don't you let me do it? That's not how it works. Humble submission to God's agenda. You'll get spotted. I assure you, the eldership and the leadership of this church are looking constantly for people that we know will be able to serve the mission because things are going to happen for us and we're going to need a team. We're going to need a group of people that are serving God's agenda. If you put your comfort and your agenda first, you're going to get sucked into fear. Fourthly, it is four, isn't it? Yeah. Obedient to God. You see what happened when Joshua did come down from that mountain with Moses and saw the terribleness of sin. That's a phrase used by one of the books I'm studying. The terribleness of sin. Saw these people dancing and having a sexual orgy in front of a golden calf. They chose that over living with the living God and being in relationship with him. He realized in that moment the terribleness of sin. In verse 17 of Exodus 32, he shouted, there is a sound of war in the camp. He goes on with Moses to discover, no, it's idolatry. And you know what Joshua discovered then? And listen to this. This is an amazing insight for me. War is not the greatest evil to come upon a people. War is not the greatest evil to come upon a people. Do you know what it is? Because we're living right in the midst of it. Idolatry. Idolatry. When a culture serves itself, serves consumerism, secularism, materialism, more than God, it's far worse than real. It's so subtle, so destructive, and it's so easy to be disobedient in a culture like ours. But Joshua learned that resisting the temptations of living in a secular culture and standing against the pressure to live according to its agenda is far better than disobedience and the destructive consequences of that lifestyle. There is nothing worse than being a Christian and not living a Christian lifestyle because you have God's spirit on your back the whole time letting you know exactly what you know. If you're going to be a Christian, go for it wholeheartedly or don't bother because it is horrible being in a place of disobedience. It's so horrible. 
every time you do that thing or look at that thing or look at that person or do it's like oh why am i oh and the disobedience just it just grasps grasp you and it's so horrible and what you do is you leave your relationships and then you leave church and you you're gone loss of community the whole book of proverbs turn there young people turn to the book of proverbs easy to read very short so you can read one or two before you need to do something else and lots of instructions about obedience finally joshua pursued intimacy with god one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture i'm starting to see and i've shared this with a lot of guys as i've been studying and preparing for joshua mark this one read this one write it somewhere exodus chapter 33 verse 11 Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Moses and Joshua go to the tent to meet with God, to meet with God. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Joshua could not get enough of God. Joshua wasn't being spoken to his leadership about, what, you're still not reading the Bible? You don't have a daily devotional and you say you've got excuses. You can spend hours doing all the entertaining stuff you do, but you cannot read the Bible every day. Man, Joshua, son of Nun, was turning to his leaders and saying, do we, do we have to go now? With God. With God's presence. The living God is with me. Oh, Joshua pursued intimacy with God. He knew the reality of God. God is real. And the glory of God. Joshua was acutely aware of the, un, the seen and the unseen worlds. There is no vast chasm between them. The unseen world is right here. The unseen world is always immediately present, not far off. Above everything and overshadowing everything is the reality of God and his glory. It obviously stood Joshua in good stead many times for him to understand that God was close. That he is the God who exists and who is here. God is close. Make sure you read John 15 if you get a chance. There is simply no more effective way of counteracting fear than a deep, personal, what I mean by that is not someone else's relationship, not the relationship of the group of us here, and you're counting on that to keep you close to God. Well, every Sunday I come a bunch amongst a guy, and that's when I talk a bit about Jesus, and we read the Word, and that guy preaches again and makes me fall asleep and goes on and on personal relationship you're going to suffer if you're counting on this if you eat one meal a week you'll die intimacy with christ pursue intimacy with god final thing i think i have a, a slide in between there but if we can just maybe pop past that one next slide is there no more okay just read that while i finish up i'm not going to read it out ask this question and we're done what's keeping you from being a joshua or a Joshua or a Joshina, the fe female version of Joshua, I don't know. What's keeping you from being that person? Can I ask some rhetorical questions? Is it disobedience? Do you know that you know that you know today you've come into this room aware that there's an area of your life that the Spirit is just on you again and again and again? And it's destroying your relationship with God and sucking you into a lifestyle of fear because you want to be like the world. Turn to God. His power in you is far greater than you can understand. He can help you conquer that. Maybe it's broken relationship with God. Maybe you've just fallen out of the habit of lingering with God. 
Maybe you have a thousand excuses as to why we don't spend time with him and draw near to him. Mate, you don't know how it is. Once I've got past level 15 on that game, it's like an hour for the next level. And I can't be doing both. Or, mate, you don't understand this football game. This is me speaking. That football game is, is plumb right in the middle of the normal time I spend with God. I can't do And you don't understand well, how late I go to bed because I've got all these things I want to do for myself. And then you're saying, study the Bible in the morning. I can't do that. And your relationship with God just breaks and breaks and breaks and breaks and becomes so distant. That will keep you from being a Joshua. Maybe you're defined by your past, failures and hurts. One of the studies I read said, you need to live with your back to the past if you're going to live like Joshua. Both, both your failures, your hurts, but also your successes. Move on and follow God. Don't be defined by the brokenness, the terror, and the pain of the past. Let God deal with that. Give that to God as you do ministry afterwards. Pray about those things that you can live with your back to the past, not defined by it. Yeah, we can celebrate some of the things in our past, but don't be defined by that. Be defined by your relationship with God. Spurgeon writes about true humility, that it's not being kind of thinking lowly of yourself. That's not humility, that's pride. You're thinking of yourself too much. That's why you start getting low, because it's not enough to think of you. Think of Jesus. True humility is not thinking a lot about yourself or thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. And finally, maybe what's keeping you from being a Joshua is a weak will. Don't for a moment think that you'll survive this Christian journey trusting only in the feelings of love for God and from God. You, you won't make it. It's a lot. It's a battle. Psalm 42, you see David, who was said to be one whose heart was after God. He loved God amazingly, had such a relationship with him. But you see in Psalm 42, him commanding his downcast soul. His soul was broken. He was in pain. He was in hurt. But he commands it with his will, with his will, because he knows God's love him. He says, look to God. And we're going to need to do that again and again in our relationship with God if we want to be a Joshua. Philippians 2 verses 12 through 14 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Give all that you have. And sometimes you need to use your will. There are days, sometimes weeks, even months when we don't feel the love of God. The way we follow him, the way we be a Joshua, the way we live life without fear in those seasons is because of our will. We say that Passover moment for me, June 20th, 1993, I know God loves me. I know God is here. So I'm going to keep on striving. And then there will be breakthrough. There will be radical, powerful, glorious breakthrough. And the relationship will be restored.